From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Many experts believe the SEC is the strongest league in college basketball this year, and the Gators have faced three of the very best teams to open conference play. Now in an early 0-3 hole, Mike White's team is facing a critical stretch and hoping to make hay against some of the SEC's weaker squads. On today's show, We'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss how men's hoops can turn the tide, big additions to Billy Napier's coaching staff, important decisions for the Gators' secondary, a historic win for women's basketball, and the state of SEC football following Georgia's win over Alabama in the PAT. Then, gymnastics super senior Megan Skaggs joins us to share how she unexpectedly ended up in Gainesville how the 2020 COVID shutdown changed her perspective on competing, and how she's using the new NIL rules to make a difference in the community. To get us underway, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan that loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where pet lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Let's dig into this week's roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Uh, and we'll start by talking basketball. And Chris, obviously, I think everyone wishes the story were better. But you know, at the moment, Florida, a uh, tough start in an SEC that, that may very well be the best league in the country. But that's really no consolation to the Gators who, you know, by chance of the Ole Miss postponement and the three games they've played, I've uh, played three of the better teams in the league, and they've been close. At times, they've been very close, but just not quite enough. First against Auburn on the road, and then against LSU at home on, on Wednesday. Yeah, Adam, not just two of the, uh, or excuse me, not just three of the best teams in the league. These are three of the best teams in the country. Tuesday night, uh, uh, Alabama and Auburn played a hell of a game. Some people watched that. That was a track meet in that game. Um, I was obviously in Auburn uh, Saturday for Florida's loss to the Tigers, and Florida played that game pretty damn well. And, and that is one hell of an environment, man, that what they've done there, what Bruce Pearl has created, that team that he has, that uh, uh, the arena that they're, that they're playing in and, and their home court advantage, Jabari Smith, the probably the number one pick in the NBA draft in 2022, they got a really deep team and, you know, Florida stared that kind of down and, and was very much in the game could have led a, a 14 point lead get way out of hand in the first half, but battled back and, and had chances to 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 take the lead with some stops or what have you um, at critical times. I mean, the games, the, you know, the, the lead was four, the lead was two. They had a couple instances of single possessions where they needed stops. Now, I told you that story to tell you this one because the Alabama, or excuse me, the I'm getting my rank of teams mixed up here. Uh, <laughs> Florida played LSU nine times in the second half. Nine. They needed a stop to have a chance to, uh, to either tie or, or to, to have, have a chance to in, in nine, one possession defensive situations. Only three of those times was it a three possession game. The other times were two or, and there was at one point there was one LSU scored every time. 
And that's really uh, the word disheartening was the word for, you know, uh, Mike White used because, uh, uh, and he actually used that when he was talking about offense because Florida, again, missing shots, um, open shots against the number one defense in the country. You know, yeah, I, 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 I spoke to the inability for stops, but you go back, you look, they shot 36% from the floor, 11 of 22 from the free throw line, it, you know, in a game that's, that's, that's really, really close. Uh, at Auburn in a game that's really, really close, they were 29 of 28, or excuse me, uh, 19 of 28. So that's uh, 20 missed free throws the last two games um, in, in games against really good teams that you have a chance to win. And not only that, Chris, but you're talking about these as being great defensive teams. The free throw is the one shot you can't defend. So if there's anywhere you need <laughs> to make hay, it's at the free throw line when you're playing these elite defensive teams. Yeah, and I think, I'm, I mean, I'm sure I've talked about it here before. They, I have a hard time believing, I, and obviously I'm at practice, I have a hard time believing there's a bunch of teams out there that practice free throws much more than Florida does in pressure situations where they, they blow the whistle and they have, a, I believe it's 90 seconds or two minutes where they have to make, they, they collectively all shoot. And if the team doesn't make 80%, they run. Um, and, you know, they don't want to run, believe me, at that, at that particular junction. But, um, you know, obviously free throws, free throws are a problem when you're missing that many. But, I mean, you're missing, you're missing open shots over the course of a game against these really, really good defensive teams. The Hubbard was a sixth-ranked defense uh, in advanced metrics. And then LS, LSU was first. And, uh, you know, Florida, like I said, they shoot 36%. Colin Castleton was great. I mean, he was 7 of 10 from the floor. He had 19 points, 9 rebounds, a couple assists. But, I mean, you take him out of the equation, the rest of the team is 13 for 45. That's 28.8%. And 6 of 16 from the free throw line, which is 37.5%. Wow. So they're not getting the production. So these are things that just jump out of the box score. Uh, some of the things maybe you got to crunch or you got to look a little bit deeper to find out like that statistic I just gave you. But um, yes, the Florida has opened the season uh, an incredibly difficult schedule. I don't think there's another team in the country that probably has played three, not only ranked opponents, uh, three ranked opponents to start their, uh, their, their, their respective conference schedule. Um, there's just, I mean, but, but the SEC, this is a wildly athletic, wildly fast, incredibly talented and these the teams at the top of the we haven't talked about kentucky yet yeah (laughs) (laughs) right it's true that's the first time i mentioned kentucky and the gators will see them down the line i haven't mentioned tennessee yet but uh it it doesn't get any easier adam i mean saturday florida goes to south carolina and um you know while they've won their last two trips i think to columbia i believe uh frank martin has i think a three and six record or excuse me a six and three record um, against the Gators while Mike White's been here. It's just the way they play, their nature, and the, 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 the physical nature for which they play has always given Florida problems for whatever reason, even some of Florida's better teams. Obviously, the best team Mike White had here uh, lost to South Carolina uh, in a game to determine who was going to the Final Four. So, so it's a Saturday road trip to Columbia, which is, presents its problems, Adam. Then, then the Gators uh, – have two consecutive home games. Next Wednesday, they'll play Mississippi State at home. Mississippi State is a good team. Okay, Mississippi State uh, is, is a projected NCAA tournament team. They'll play Vanderbilt at home uh, the following Saturday. Then they have to <clears throat> excuse me, wake up early the next morning, fly to Ole Miss, all right, where they'll have to play a makeup game uh, less than 48 hours after that Vanderbilt game, a makeup game to Ole Miss, the one that was supposed to open the SEC season. After that Ole Miss game, they'll get on a plane right away and fly to Tennessee because two days later – They'll play against Tennessee, 
and uh, games against the volunteers for the for the Gators are are always brutal games. It's a, a Rick Barnes is another one of those guys who plays who has his teams play very physically, and and they've they, they've had their way against the Gators in recent years. So uh, I'd like to say that uh, that things are going to get better, but uh, a lot of that's up to Florida. You know, make shots. And Mike White talked about toughness. Uh, he talked about you know fighting through adversity, and he he says <laughs> he says they've shown a pretty good resiliency in terms of fighting through adversity. They didn't have to early in the season; they didn't have a whole lot of adversity. Now they got a bunch. They fought through it in the game some, but then finish. Now they got to fight through all this. Uh, there's going to be noise now, and so they're going to have to deal with some of that too. So not exactly happy times right now. But if there's a if there's a positive. I mean, it's three brutal games out of the way. There's still 15 to go, but a lot of a lot of stuff is going to come at the Gators very, very fast over the next couple of weeks. So that's what's happening on the basketball front. Let's turn our attention now to football. Latest news and notes, and again, the little little pieces each week come out, and they they add up. We get to talk about them once a week. Uh, since last time we talked, Scott, a couple of coaching announcements, a couple of player announcements. Uh, let's start on the coaching side. Um, a couple of pretty big names coming into the fold here as part of Billy Napier's on-field staff, which is, I think, pretty much everybody that's you know that, that covers the sport that's looking from both inside and outside says it's it's a very impressive and accomplished group that that he's collected. Yeah, it's a real mixture of uh, of people, Adam. It's some people uh, like the newest hire, Rob Sell, who you know, offensive line coach. Uh, he was with Napier at Louisiana but spent this last season as the New York Giants offensive uh, line coach. So now he's coming to Florida, rejoining Napier as, uh, you know, coaching offensive line, co-offensive coordinator. So a big hire anytime you bring back someone you have connections with and who you had success with. But also you got to expect that in Napier's mind, I mean, Sell just spent a season in NFL. So, you know, he's going to come back with maybe some ideas or some uh, experience that he didn't have when they worked together at Louisiana. So um, it's kind of a, to me, it looks like a win-win there for the Gators. And, you know, you look at that, just the offensive line and the way he structured staff. So you've got, you know, Rob Sell, veteran offensive line coach, Darnell Stapleton, a former NFL player who, you know, assists the offensive line coach. And then one of the most recent additions is he's an analyst on the offensive line, adept Cheston Blackshear, you know, the former Gator player. So, I mean, that's three people, that, you know, they're going to be split doing other duties, but that's a lot of people on the offensive line, but that's the way that Napier is building this staff. That's the way, as we've talked about before, as Napier's mentioned, those two teams that played in the championship the other night, Georgia and Alabama, the two teams Florida's trying to catch in the SEC, guess what? This is the way they've been doing it. So uh, we're just seeing some moves uh, and alignments in the coaching staff that, you know, reflect some of that. And of course, Napier, you know, has his own touch. He'll have his own titles and stuff. So it's not going to, you know, no school is exactly identical as the other, but you get the, you get the uh, impression that they're, they're building a pretty impressive staff uh, in terms of experience and bodies. And uh, another guy, I don't think you mentioned here, that's coming back, Mike Peterson, the former mm -hmm. uh, linebacker, here at Florida, great player uh, for Steve Spurrier's teams in the mid to late 90s. Then he went on to the NFL 14-year career, uh, very accomplished player. 
know, we see Mike come back here actually under the during the Will Muschamp regime, and uh, he came back after his NFL career was over and worked in the weight room and got some experience connected with Muschamp, who took him up to South Carolina, where he spent the last few years working with the linebackers. And now he's coming back as linebackers and coach and uh, I think alumni liaison. So, you know, it's that it's that combination that coaches look for in this modern era. You got a guy who's an accomplished player who's got experience as a coach, but he's also got roots to your program. And as Billy Napier looks to kind of create his program here, he hit a lot of points there with Ike Peterson. You get a you get a guy who the players are gonna listen to because Look at what he's done in NFL. He's a guy who knows what is going on in the college coaching world right now because he's been in the last few years. And guess what? You get a guy who knows all about Gators' traditions, has connections with the program's history, uh, and a lot of those former teammates bringing them back in the fold. So uh, good hire there, I think. And just really, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I've been impressed the way that the staff's come together, the way Napier's done it. And there's still a couple more spots that will be filled, Adam. Well, they know that that we have a a weekly podcast, so they're just trying to space it out. So we've got new football nuggets. But I I say that as a joke, but also there is a method to this. And I think that's something else that Napier is clearly keyed in on. You always want people talking about you. And it's not like they said, here's our... I mean, I don't even know how many people at this point. Let's let's say it's a hundred. It seems that way. It's not. Here's the hundred people we're hiring. No, this is a this is a strategy. This is to make sure that you know, despite the fact Florida is not playing in the national championship, they weren't playing on you know the week of the New Year's bowls. The Gators were staying in the news because of this steady diet of here's a new hire, here's a new hire. There's there's a method to that madness as well. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I know last. Last show, I think we talked about, you know, it's a good PR move from him in terms of just keeping the program in uh, the college football conversation when, you know, you're not part of the college football playoff. And also, I mean, some of it's planned out that way. And then, of course, there was a couple of hires like Rob Sell. They waited until the NFL season was over. Right. So some of these late hires are because of that. Uh, But the announcements, it's almost like, okay, we're going into a new era at Florida with the football program. And guess what? We're going to show you guys what we're talking about on a daily basis almost. And that's with these hires and new titles and just really building their foundation. I mean, it's like a fresh start. I uh, mm-hmm. I got a story later this week on Katie Turner, who was one of his big hires, is, you know, kind of overseeing recruiting on campus, recruiting and, you know, doing a lot of things on that side of, of the operation and, and she was just at Georgia, uh, and she left Georgia. She's also been at Alabama. And I was talking to her just about, you're already at Georgia. You're already at a great place. You know, why leave there to come to Florida? And she had joined Napier when he first got to Louisiana from the Buffalo Bills. She was up in Buffalo working, kind of building up her career. He calls her because they worked together at Alabama when she was a student. And he says, hey, I, you know, would love for you reconnect down here and she jumped at the opportunity because, again, it was a chance to kind of start fresh, build a program that they want to build. Uh, like she said out there in Louisiana, when he first got to Louisiana, she joined the staff there. Now they're looking to do it on a bigger level, obviously, in Florida. When, and recruiting, as we know now, is a uh, you have to recruit high school players. 
You have to recruit guys in the transfer portal. And, and to some degree, you have to recruit your own players who are deciding where they're going to go next, if they're going to leave and go to the NFL or continue. Um, two guys in the last week since we talked that made those decisions Kyrie Elam most recently announced he was entering the draft. I don't think that was a huge surprise, although he did play in the bowl game. And a lot of guys that are leaving early now are not playing in bowl games. So maybe that was a little surprise. And then I think you could also say it was a surprise uh, that Trey Dean announced he was coming back. This was a couple days after uh, I know he had tweeted out his invite to the Combine and then decided he's going to come back for another year. So uh, both guys affecting, obviously, the secondary, a big area of concern for Florida going forward, and now a little more clarity in terms of the personnel that Napier is going to have, at least this year. You're right. I think it was a bigger surprise that Trey Dean said, I'm coming back. And, uh, you know, Trey's been around the program now for a few years, and uh, due to COVID, you know he has an opportunity to take that extra year. I just think most assume since he, uh, you know, is, in here five seasons, I'm pretty sure. I think his first season was under Will Muschamp about <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> no, it's not that far, but he certainly came in under uh, Jim McElwain in terms of yeah. being recruited. So he's been here, and I think Trey, you know, if you look at what he's put out there over his career, he's had some moments, but I think he could certainly improve, and maybe for him it's a chance to get a chance, one more chance with a new coach and see if that – maybe can help him get to where he wants to be. Maybe he was hearing some things uh, about the NFL that, you know, say, okay, I can go back and work on this stuff. So he hasn't spoken publicly about why he did what he did, but that's certainly a surprise that gives him, if nothing else, Adam, it gives him a veteran presence in the secondary, a guy who won't be surprised by anything. He won't be caught off guard. It's just a matter of can he, you know, show some, improvement to be a leader back there to, to make some big plays because they can use all that they, 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 they can get. So, and then Kyrie Elam, I don't think it was a surprise really to anybody uh, like you had alluded to. It's probably more of a surprise that he played in Gasparilla Bowl, mm-hmm. which I respected that decision. That's the kind of stuff I like to see a guy hang around, finish it out with his teammates. And then if he wants to go into the draft, which I think most people felt was inevitable with uh, Kyrie ever since the start of the season, really, when it was projected that he was probably going to be a first-round pick in most NFL uh, eyes. And he, he had one of those seasons that, you know, the stats certainly don't scream at you like great player, great season. He missed three games because he was hurt. But I think if you really look at the, the deeper skill set, what you need at the next level, and also some of the analytics on how teams attack the Gators' defense really going away from him. Football insiders, they know that this guy has all the tools to be a, a really good cornerback at the NFL level. And if you're if you're projected as a first rounder after a season when you you know didn't exactly put up great numbers, uh, you got to go. <laughs> yeah, no, makes sense. Before we move on to our PAT, a, a quick note on women's basketball. We've pointed out a, a couple times this year when they've they've surprised people. Uh, first was when they beat Florida State. Uh, that was a surprise, maybe even a bigger surprise. They went to Texas A&M this past week, overcame, I think it was a 17-point deficit, and won in overtime in College Station, which the program had never done before. Um, so again, they're definitely playing better than people thought they would in this weird situation with Kelly Ray Finley as the interim coach. And they've shown that they, they can surprise people. They almost beat Georgia a few days earlier. So they, they've definitely shown that, that they can surprise people in the SEC. 
Yeah, I mean, this is so far, what, 15 games in or so. This is definitely, I think, the most competitive Florida team consistently uh, that we've seen on the women's basketball side in a while. And, uh, you know, they started off with those back-to-back losses in the SEC, one of them at home against Georgia. As you reference a game that they led most of the way, they really got away from them at the end because of turnovers. Uh, but then they had to rebound couple of factors working against them, really, going out on the road to Texas A&M. You know, Gary Blair, a longtime coach out there, it's just kind of swan song, it's final season, so there's a lot of hoopla around that. Georgia beat the Gators in their last game here at home, and then, of course, they were without Lavender Briggs, who, you know, has an injury that she announced on social media. She's out for the, the rest of the season, uh, so they're playing their first game without her, and and they go out there and they get down by 17, and you're like, well, you know, this is probably going to be uh, just one of those tough road games, that tough situation. But they, they showed some fight. And, of course, Zippy Broughton uh, scored 28 points. That always helps. So, yeah. you know, I just, from what I've seen Adam early on, it's just a team that they've got some good pieces there. You know, if you saw any of the, the videos or anything on social media after the game, I mean, you could tell it meant something to them. Uh, they're spraying Kelly Ray Finley with water, the other assistant coaches, when they came into the locker room after the game. And that's one that, you know, you can build on. And they know Lavender Briggs is not going to be there. So, you know, they just got Zippy uh, Broughton back. See how these pieces fit. But I, I just like some of the intangibles that they're showing early on. And, you know, you got to give Kelly Ray Finley some credit here. I mean, it's, a, it's an odd situation uh, with what's going on you know, with the head coach previously, and then she takes over, right, you know, before the season. And and now it's kind of an interim basis, and what are they going to do after the season? You know what? All she can do is worry about in-season and see what kind of stamp she can put on this team. And right now, I'm impressed where they are. I mean, let's face it. They're uh, being talked about in a way that we haven't talked about them in a while, Adam. Yeah. and if they can stay competitive and win some more games like they did out at Texas A&M, you're looking at a team right now that they could easily, you know, get back into the tournament for the first time in a while. And, and who knows how that will uh, affect Kelly Ray's position down the road. Uh, but, yeah, I think that would be a positive sign. If there's, a, if you're making a case for, for the job, that would be a good thing to put on the resume. I think it's safe to say. I, I would definitely think yeah. so. Um, all right, let's turn our attention now to our PAT and uh, we, we've alluded to it here multiple times. It's obviously what everyone's talking about in the in the world of college football. And that is Georgia uh, finally getting over that hump uh, when it comes to Nick Saban, when it comes to Alabama taking the national championship. We've talked about this. I'm curious where you guys are because and, and maybe maybe I'm too deep in, in the forest. Right. I, I can't see the trees up here in Atlanta and I'm hearing all of the hype and it's been talked about for so long. But I, I do wonder if what we saw Monday suggests that Georgia is becoming the new Alabama. The question is, for that to be true, you would also have to acknowledge that Nick Saban is maybe not going to be the top guy anymore. I guess what I'm asking is, are you ready to go out on that ledge just yet and consider that up until this year, he had never lost to one of his assistants and then it happened twice. So first Jimbo Fisher did it during the regular season. That sort of broke the dam. And then Kirby Smart finally did it uh, with Georgia to get him the national championship. But I, I don't know. I, from, from where I sat, especially some of the decisions that Saban made in that game, uh, not taking the timeouts going into the half, 
And if you look at Saban throughout the season, maybe being a little bit softer than usual, um, I just wonder if, if, if the edge, if that intimidation factor he's held over so many people for so long is starting to wear off. And as that goes down and some of these barriers get broken, does that mean that we're heading toward a point of no return? Your thoughts? Well, I think it's a good, good little narrative right now, but I'm not putting too much stock in it, Adam. You know, Nick Saban, <laughs> get, let's face it, man. You say, okay, they lost to Jimbo Fisher. They got upset. Okay, that's, that's cool. I mean, the biggest game of the year, they win the SEC championship after that, beating the same team in the second biggest game of the year they lost to. But when they were ahead of 19 to 18 late in the third quarter, and I, I don't know, but I think, if you if Nick at if uh, if we were talking to Nick Saban here, we gave him a little truth serum and said, "Hey Nick, I mean, we can really look at your 2021 Alabama team. You guys play for a national title. Is this one of your most disappointing losses?" And or I, I don't think he would think so at all. I think he would think, you know what, this was probably one of my least talented, or at least. Not this was one of his weaker teams sure. in his 15 seasons. Yeah, they struggled throughout the year in a lot of games yeah. that they usually didn't struggle in in the past. Yeah, and they were still playing for the national championship, and they still led Georgia in the second half. That's true. Uh, so I think with what he has coming back, uh, with what he's going to add and already has added for the future, uh, I'm just I'm not going to write Nick Saban off until he says I'm I quit or starts. You know, you know, coming out of a post-game press conferences a Batman costume, <laughs> then I'll write him off. <laughs> Until then, you know, he, to me, he's the best all-time. But on the flip side of that, I give Kirby Smart in Georgia a lot of credit because, you know, I, I thought after they lost that national champ or uh, SEC championship game, I mean, you know, you had to come back and win two huge games, and yeah. and they did it. And they've been knocking at the door. This Georgia. Alabama rivalry, it's, it's been going on for really five, six years now. Yeah, It's just that Georgia finally cracked it. Uh, but I, I look at it just as a great rivalry uh, that's been one-sided. Now Georgia has a little bit of an advantage, obviously, but don't I will not be surprised at all if they go at it again next year and Alabama wins. So uh, I'm not writing Nick Saban off until Nick Saban writes himself off. Having said that, I'm hoping – Schools like Florida and maybe some others can get into this conversation because I think it would be good for college football. I think it would be good for just people who don't like red. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, you're I'm tired a, a wider of, a wider color palette, right? Yeah, we need. Yeah, man, we need some new colors up there, Mike. All right. So what you're saying really is that uh, as an old school kind of guy, remember, like in the in, of course, you won't remember. You're too young, but in the eighties, <laughs> the 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 Pistons always had to fight, 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 and they finally overtook the Celtics. Then the Pistons were king, and they and the Bulls were on their heels. And fight, fight. The Bulls finally overtook uh, uh, the Pistons. Mm-hmm. And I, I just re- I just remember those two teams were always trying to climb. There was always some team that had to overcome another team. So what you guys are saying is like Georgia has has kind of knocked Alabama off the pedal. Scott's not saying it, but you're po- this is what you're posing is is that's what is, I'm posing. Is, yes, is is this a case where Georgia has now uh, unseated uh, the Crimson Tide as the team in college football? They were crushed at some at some pivotal skill position. You could tell as deep as they are, they, they had some guys that that weren't ready to be in that particular position. 
against a team as good as Georgia. And hats off to Georgia. You know, uh, you know, fans can say what they want, want to do. I mean, I, I, they, they got all over Flan Fleming for his routine um, on Instagram or whatever. But you, you got to say congratulations to Georgia, I think. Whether you hate them or not, you just got to respect it, what they've done and, and the program that Kirby Smart has built. And that was a game, man. That was a great game, a great defensive game. And there was so much talent on the field. I imagine they'll be – they may even do, be doing statistics down the line uh, about that game and how many of those guys are in the National Football League, say, f- say five years from now. Um, Nick Saban's 70 years old. He doesn't seem to me uh, to be even close to, uh, to uh, abdicating anything. And in fact, I would say, if anything, it's just going to make him more determined. I guarantee Kirby Smart's probably not saying, oh, we got them now. We got this. <laughs> We're the kings. We'll we'll give. I'm not, I don't think Nick Saban needs us to give him a pass or anything. But uh, just let's not forget that just it was just a couple of weeks ago that Alabama beat the hell out of Georgia. So I'm not ready to uh, to quite make that statement yet. Just so Scott and I are actually in agreement on something for a change, right? Yeah, it's it's an interesting story that will continue to evolve. And obviously, the goal is for Florida to get into that conversation. But right now. It is definitely Georgia and Alabama's world in college football, and everyone else is just trying to get a piece of it. Um, but everyone's also always trying to get a piece of our. But everyone's also always trying to get a piece of our Gator Roundtable. But they can't come in. We got Gator Scott. We got Gators Chris here exclusively every week for you. Uh, make sure to track what they're doing on Twitter, and of course their content on FloridaGators.com. And we will talk to you guys next week. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. When the sports world abruptly stopped in 2020, athletes all over were devastated, especially those in college whose careers had unexpectedly come to an end. For gymnastics star Megan Skaggs, the shutdown produced a different emotion, one that forced her to reevaluate how she approached the sports she loved and rediscover the why behind it all. That's just part of the fascinating chat we had with the charismatic Georgia native following a sparkling debut in Florida's first meet of the season. So I grew up in Marietta, Georgia. I was born in Atlanta and lived in Georgia my whole life. I have a sister. Um, We both grew up in a cute little neighborhood. Um, Went to school for a little bit, got pulled out of school to be homeschooled in the second grade when my sister, she's four years older than me, she was going into middle school. And that was just uh, for my sister, but I ended up never going back to school. So every kid's dream, right? (laughs) Yeah. Second grade, uh, no more school. (laughs) (laughs) Literally just dropped out completely in the second grade. It's probably the earliest you could drop out. But um, (laughs) gymnastics really picked up in the meantime and started training twice a day, six, seven hours a day at a gym that was about 45 minutes away from where I lived in Marietta. It was in Kennesaw. And going there all the time. Thank goodness for my parents who are so gracious and willing to drive me an hour and a half every day to and from wow. gym. Uh, <laughs> the there and back 45 adds up. Um, that was before the express up... lanes too. Now they got the express lane that goes up there. But now oh, for back, sure. yeah, that back was... then you were just stuck. Of course it wasn't built then. Um, <laughs> and now actually funny, my parents moved to Kennesaw. So they live 10 minutes from the gym that they drove me to, <laughs> 45 minutes. But Very convenient now, right? Oh. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but um, did that that whole my, my whole life. That was uh, get up, wake up in the morning, go to gym, come home, do school, 
go back to gym, come back home, do homework. Really, it was it was pretty structured. Um, and with gymnastics, you peak so early on in the sport. So when I was in the sixth grade, I started getting recruited. I grew up diehard Georgia fan and uh, always thought I would become a gym dog. But when it came time to actually make the decision in ninth grade is when I was really seriously considering colleges. And I reluctantly came on a visit to Florida and refused to wear orange and blue, could not even get me in a gator shirt. But I walked on campus and really just loved it. And it was hard for me to admit that I I fell in love here and just felt like I fit so well. So ended up committing, even though in my mind, I was like, what? I'm going to Florida when I, I've just loved Georgia my whole life. But yeah, finished up high school, came here and been here ever since. Right, so you, you fast forwarded through a, a lot of where I, I think the, the big formative moments happen. So mm-hmm. most people don't just drop out of school and go do, do gymnastics, right? So what was it? How did you get into gym to where that was even something you considered doing? Well, I started gymnastics when I was four. Gymnastics is a sport where you start a little bit younger than some other sports, um, and it gets pretty serious pretty fast. But I got interested in this sport because one night I I was sick up late, and my mom was taking care of me, and she's just trying to entertain me, her little three-year-old daughter. Um, so she puts on the TV, and on TV at three in the morning, the only thing that's on was like random shows and she chose Cirque du Soleil and Mm. I immediately was locked in and fell in love with the movement and the art of the what I didn't know at the time was gymnastics so I was begging her I was like what is that tell me what that is I need to do that so the only way she could describe it was just to say that's gymnastics and from that moment on I was hooked and continued to beg my parents to let me do gymnastics classes and they were a little iffy about it I was in ballet and tap dancing at the time and of course I'm so young I'm like three and a half turning four (laughs) and finally I was like okay I I have a plan um so I decided when Christmas came around to on my Christmas list that I was sending to Santa to write gymnastics classes as something that I wanted for Christmas and I think at that point my parents were like okay well we got to give her gymnastics now I mean she's turned to Santa she's she's gone all the way so (laughs) Ended up starting when I was four at a small gym in my in my hometown and instantly fell in love. It was everything and more that I ever could have imagined and honestly was locked in from that moment on. And I think the best part about how I started in the sport was that it was always me. I was the one who wanted to start and I was always the one to go to practice and want to do gymnastics. And that that gave me ownership of the sport and of my now, what is it, 20, almost 20 year athletic career wow. um, from the beginning. So that's really how I got into it and never looked back. I imagine everybody wants to be on the national team, right? And that's a goal for every single gymnast that gets started with those dreams. Talk about your path to actually get there to the point where you win a, a championship at the, the Pan Am Games as a member of Team USA. That I mean, I know there's probably a lot of steps to go into it, but just the, the trajectory of that while also getting those college offers you mentioned starting in, in sixth grade. That sounds like there's, there's a lot of decisions about your future happening mm-hmm. very, very early. Yeah, it, it's tough. And it's crazy how early the college recruitment process starts, especially while 
you're starting to get into the heart of your career where you're deciding, okay, do I take this and go the fun route and kind of take it easy in the sport? Or do I go the more challenging route, the more serious route and shoot for the national team, shoot for the Olympics? And when I was at that point, I thought, you know what, I I love this so much and I really want to take it far and I want to see how far I can push myself and how good I can be. And that was always the goal is just to be the best that I could be for myself. And thankfully, that did lead me into some really cool rooms with (laughs) some of the best gymnasts out there. And I was able to make the national team, but it was a long process. I uh, spent a lot of time being the worst of the best and being in those rooms with crazy good athletes, but not quite being good enough to make the team. I think it took me four years of attending national team camp and monthly going to Texas to train with incredible staff and learning from some really big names in the sport, but not quite hitting the mark yet. And eventually I did. And I ended up making my first assignment in Italy. So it was tough. And I'm sure every gymnast will tell you it's a tough, long process. Um, But I'm really thankful to have been through it for everything that it taught me and the places that it's brought me to now. You know, being at, at camp all those years, I, I can imagine the number of names that that just casual fans know really well. Um, who were some of the influences you had, some of the gymnasts you encountered on that national team journey that uh, that had an impact on you? Oh, so many. I I have so many great, fun memories of camps and training with all kinds of faces, but... Uh, I mean, just to name a few that have been in the college space, Maggie Nichols, Kyla Ross, Madison Koshin, um, Bridget Sloan and I didn't quite cross over. She was a little bit older than I, but but I would have loved to attend a national team camp with her because she's so fun. <laughs> but um, I mean, people on my team now too, Trinity, we crossed over, Lori Hernandez, um, uh, Simone Biles, like everyone was there and I was always in that room, which was very cool to to be able to be in the same space space with some of the most really talented and athletic people that I have ever met and kind of fangirl with them. But <laughs> yeah, I guess those are just a few. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the national team starting out, taking you to Italy. One of the, the things I find so interesting about athletes that get to the national team level is the experiences you have all over the world that, that sport is able to provide for you. Um, what are some of the most memorable experiences you've had around the world as a result of gymnastics? It's a good question. I think some of the most memorable and impactful experiences have happened since coming to University of Florida. Um, prior to University of Florida, the Pan American Games were an unbelievable experience. I was there with girls who are now all in college or graduated, but Rachel Gowie and Amelia Hunley were two of my teammates. And we all knew that we were going to be at Florida together someday. So that was really cool for us to be on a team and kind of preview what it would be like to be on the Florida Gators gymnastics team. But I think all of us who were on the Pan American team in 2015 knew that that was our Olympics. Of course, we were still going to get up the next year and try for the Olympics, try to make trials, but we really took it all in and had just such a great experience being able to be in the Pan American Village. And it was a great trip. And 
we were we were so excited and so happy when we took home gold and a lot of us made individual finals and I was fortunate enough to take home a personal silver as well. So those are just great memories, but it was just the beginning for us and for the three of us that came to UF. So it was a start and I'm really grateful to have made so many more experiences, more impactful ones at UF so far. Hmm. You know, a lot of your story from what I've read about you sort of it, it pivots in 2020 because and that's a natural point for a lot of people because of COVID that forced a lot of us to to sit back and take time to think about what's important to us. Are we approaching things the right way? Um, can you talk about why the 2020 season was so formative for you and, and how it kind of changed your outlook as far as your career? I think to talk about the 2020 season, I have to back up a little bit and talk about fall of that year. So 2019 fall, Um, going into fall semester, I realized that academically I would be able to graduate from my undergraduate degree in three years instead of four. So in the 2019, 2020 season, I was a junior and I'm just finding out that, oh, I can graduate and start a master's degree next year. So that kind of crunched together my junior and senior year academically. Mm-hmm. So I started taking 18 credits in the fall and also doing student athlete advisory committee, wow. um, serving on the executive board and training. And of course, trying to keep myself healthy with ankle issues and little things that I had been recovering from from the previous season. So that semester was a lot and I was enjoying it. I was loving it, having a great time, but I think I took on maybe a little bit more than I could handle and it didn't really catch up to me until spring semester happened. Um, I was in a normal course load during spring, but of course we're starting season and that whole season, I feel like I just wasn't entirely checked in mentally, emotionally, and it, it was a rough season for me. And Of course, the Gators were doing great. We had a super strong team and we were coming off of what the year before everything that happened, not making it to nationals and really turning that all around and coming with vengeance for the 2020 season. And then it all ended. And I distinctively remember the the huddle at the end of what we didn't know was our final practice of 2020, the day before senior night. And Jenny walking out and we all we knew we could kind of sense that it was coming to an end and her sharing that everything had been cut off and we were all needing to go home pretty much ASAP and just looking around and seeing different emotional reactions. Of course, the seniors were realizing that their careers were over Um, and for the rest of us, our season was over. Some of the freshmen felt like they had just gotten started and now their freshman year was over. And I just felt a strange sense of relief that it was over. And I felt guilty for feeling that way, but I took note on that feeling that I had and went home the following week and really thought on why I was feeling relieved when this season of a sport that I, I love doing was over. I should be sad that I'm not going to get to do gymnastics the rest of the season, but I was thankful to go home and spend some time with my family and really have time to reset and think. And I realized that I just wasn't in a healthy mental space and I wasn't prioritizing the things that I needed to be healthy mentally, emotionally, physically, to be the best version of myself 
for life outside mm. of gym and for life inside of the gym. So 2020, that's a, that's a long roundabout story to get to just summer of 2020 was such a reset leading into my senior year and really changed my perspective on how I approach academics, my normal day-to-day life and athletics. And it made the 2021 season, surprisingly, given COVID and everything, the most enjoyable season and year that I've had in the sport so far. I know part of your mission also became the Tiny Bow Project, which might not mean a lot to people who don't know what it's about. So tell us what that's about and, and how that's been a part of your the, the end of your journey here. So I was granted this fifth year. So I came back for my senior year, finished up that season, had a great year. And I'm so grateful that we were able to come back for our fifth year, the seniors that were supposed to graduate last year. So I decided that I would take advantage of the additional year of eligibility. But given that I've already done my four years here at UF in this sport, this fifth year just felt like it was for more than just myself. So this past summer, I spent some time brainstorming how I could use this additional gifted year to give back to those around me, to my community and to the world and really make it about more than just gymnastics. So the Tiny Bow Project was born. I brainstormed it with a close friend of mine and really just tried to tap into where my heart is and things that I care about. So I identified 10 causes, one for each of the meets during the regular season, this this 2022 season, and kind of built the idea off of my signature hairstyle, which is two French braids with tiny bows and on the little ponytails, which is a small thing, but it's a physical way to represent each cause. So at each meet during the regular season, I'll be wearing bows that are the awareness colors for one of the 10 causes that I've selected for the tiny bow project and to bring others in on the impact and really increase the impact this season. I have built a website and I'm offering the tiny bow ribbon pack, which is a pack of 10 ribbons, one for each of the meets for purchase on my website, but 20% of each purchase goes toward the benefiting charities for each tiny bow project cause. Hmm. So that's a long explanation, but it's, it's been great so far and we're in week two and it's really cool to have each week of the regular season dedicated to a different cause and really bring others in on the impact and compete for something that's bigger than the Gators, bigger than gymnastics and bigger than myself. Hmm. How did you choose the causes? Were they specific to you? Are they things that you got input from family and friends on? They are specific to me. I definitely had conversations with my teammates and my family and my close friend, Corey, who really helped me figure out what I care about. And of course, I wanted to align with what our competitions are doing. So this coming Sunday, we were doing an equality meet. Um, and last year we were able to celebrate pride at one of our meets. So I definitely wanted to do pride. We're, uh, we're also doing an allyship night against our LSU at that meet. And then, um, our link to pink meet, I really wanted to include those three causes. Those were automatic ones, but then after those three were set in, I, I took kind of a deeper, deeper look on where my heart is and what I care about. And 
identified other causes, one specifically being mental health, which was our, our leadoff cause. I felt like that was the most important one because when everything got shut down in 2020 and really COVID and my fifth year and everything kind of that ball started rolling, yeah. that really was a big turning point was focusing on my own mental health and learning what that even meant. Um, so that was our first cause that we kicked off with. And the rest kind of just rolled from there and have been really close to my heart. But I, it's exciting to be able to bring others in on the impact as well and see my teammates step up for causes that they care about within the Tiny Bill Project. You know, it's interesting because this is obviously possible because of the NIL rules. And I think so much of the the publicity around that is, you know, a football booster giving every Miami football player like, you know, a thousand dollars a month to be an ambassador. I mean, it's not it it doesn't seem like it's on the up and up in the way that this is how you can use it for good. I, I just I, mm-hmm. I'm it's interesting to hear how you came up with this. Um, was this something you had thought about doing before and, and this made it possible or was this like, oh, now this is a thing. How could I make this special and and unique to me? NIL definitely made this possible, but purpose-driven performance has always been something I'm passionate about. I just didn't know exactly how to do it. And NIL definitely opened up that door, but it's been really cool to use Tiny Bow Project and create something that is my own in the NIL world, but with a twist where it is giving back and it's not entirely self-serving. Right. It gives me joy and it, it fills me up to see Tiny Bow Project doing well. And of course, I do benefit from it in that way. And I'm making sales and things like that, but it's allowing me to to give back and to use my platform for causes that I care about and also educate the gymnastics community and young individuals that are in my audience on these causes. So it's kind of multifaceted and I have been really excited to use NIL in a way that I haven't seen many others using it. Yeah, no, it's very cool. A couple of final questions for you. You obviously have a lot going on with gymnastics. Now you're, you're running this project. You have the website, which looks very good, by the way, I checked out the website. Um, (laughs) When you're away from the gym, what are your other interests outside of gymnastics? One of the things that takes up a lot of my time, takes up a lot of my time, but I'm also very interested in is serving on the student athlete advisory committee. Um, I love just meeting other student athletes and helping them navigate being a student athlete here at UF. So we've been able to create committees and serve in different roles this year that has been a great experience for me serving as president of SAC for UF. Um, but I also just love to hang out with my teammates and go to the grocery store, go to the plant store, like just do normal <laughs> college student things. Um, do college students go to plant stores? I didn't know that was maybe college maybe has that's changed a me since thing. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what the Gators gymnastics team does. I guess <laughs> we go and buy plants to take care of. But um, aspiring horticulturists all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, But a big thing for me right now is figuring out what I want to do after gymnastics. Gymnastics has been my whole life. And of course, I'm still finishing up school and getting a second degree. But now I need to decide what's next. So I have spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. I'm not entirely sure where I will be. But um, applying for jobs is 
on my list of things to do these days. So I'm excited for that next chapter, but really trying to embrace this final season as a Gator and enjoy my teammates and Gator Nation to the best of my abilities. When you're going to have multiple degrees, do you know generally what you want to do or what direction you'll go in? Well, Tiny Bow Project has really opened my eyes to the things that I love. I have loved creating this brand and designing all the graphics, uh, working with organizations and creating a website and running a business. That's been really interesting to me. And so the branding marketing route is definitely something that's of interest to me. I also do have a passion for the student athlete community. So if there's a way that I could combine my interest in branding and marketing with something in athletics, I think that would be a dream. But I would love to be able to help people and work with people on a daily basis. So those are my thoughts right now. And I'm hoping I can figure out a way to use all of those in a future career in some capacity. (laughs) Final question for you. You talked about, you know, the goals for this year and you want to just go out as, as you know, on top if, if possible. And obviously the team's gotten off to a great start. The the expectations are sky high. The ceiling is sky high, but championships aren't won in January, right? So when you look at your experience, everything you've been through, what do you think the keys are to making sure that this team reaches that full potential and peaks at the right time in April when everything is on the line? I think for the past few years, we've been a team that comes out really hot and toward the end of season cools off a little bit. And we're aware of that. We joked a little bit after our first meet because we weren't trying to come out hot. We still did. We can't help it. Right. (laughs) But we are pacing ourselves and staying patient and keeping that end goal in mind more than we have in the past and making sure that right now we are preparing for April. So I think staying patient as a team is the biggest thing for us and just continuing to keep our head down and grind in the gym. We haven't used all our players yet. We still have been resting a few. So it's really exciting to see that this past Friday at our first meet, we put up the score that we put up, but didn't even tap into our depth yet. So it's It's good to have the focus that we have on long-term success rather than short-term wins, but also know that we have a deep team, deeper than we've ever had. So it's exciting and we're going to bring it this year and I really can't wait for April to come, but I'm practicing patience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, you have a, a really cool story. Obviously, you've accomplished so much. Congratulations on everything that you're doing and everything to come. And and thanks so much for sharing your story with us. So happy to. Thank you for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.